Galatians chapter 5. As you guys are turning, I just want to give you guys a little bit of some background uh, on the book and uh, who wrote it and what's kind of going on. So Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians because false teachers were coming into the church and teaching them that they needed to add the works of the law to faith in Christ. And this is just clearly not true as shown throughout scripture. But Paul takes his time and explains and shows that it is justification by faith alone. And then, in good Paul fashion, he applies it to the Christian's life. Our passage that we're going to be looking at today is Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. And as we look at our passage, uh, we need to realize and understand that it, it comes as a result of Paul's discussion of faith versus works. The, this passage is not isolated from the rest of the book. It's part of how Paul applies justification by faith. In our passage, Paul outlines the work of the flesh versus the, the fruit of the spirit. And this is a battle. Paul says as much at the beginning of the passage, and you probably heard the story of those two wolves in your mind, one evil and one good. And now that, that analogy breaks down when it comes to the Bible because these are not equal beings that we're talking about. One is the omnipotent Holy Spirit and the other one is the weak flesh. But the, the idea is present in this passage. And this is a battle that every Christian faces. And Paul gives us the battle plan for the conflict that all Christians face. Let's start by reading the passage and then we'll dig in. Scripture says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led by the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as, have I, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, as we come into your house and worship you and learn more about, more about you, we pray that we would walk in the Spirit, that uh, if we have not begun to walk in the Spirit, that today would be that day. Lord, I pray that the sermon, uh, you would have free course, and that I would say the words that you want me to say. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would preach a better sermon than I'm about to preach. Lord, I love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So verses 16 through 18, we kind of have the battle plan. And whenever a soldier goes into battle, there's a strategy to vanquish the enemy. Stuff that goes into this is, is key battles. 
important locations and supply lines. And as we study scripture, we see that Paul often refers to Christians as soldiers. 2 Timothy 2.3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6, the armor of God. And Philippians 2.25, Paul describes uh, Epaphroditus as a fellow soldier. So with this, with this idea that the Christian is a soldier, soldier of the Lord, Paul gives a battle plan to his audience in verse 16. Scripture says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In light of everything that the Apostle Paul has talked about previously in verses uh, in chapters 1 through chapter 5 verse 15 he says this he's applying what he's talked about in this passage the main part of the command is to walk in the spirit now what does that mean i think that's a question that uh, pretty much every christian has asked, asked themselves at least 3 times like what does it mean to walk in the spirit I've heard answers like, you need to read your Bible and pray every day, to you need to pray before any big decision that you make, or you need to trust God in everything. And these are great, great answers, and you should definitely take that advice and read your Bible every day and pray and spend time with God. But I think that an even better answer is that every day, Christians need to take each step of the Christian life independence on the spirit to have victory over the flesh and its works the christian life is a journey it's a walk we're not sprinting to the end we are walking through this life and we need the power of the holy spirit to make it now you know that if you've ever been to walmart you need the holy spirit to make it just through walmart but the holy spirit is doesn't just apply to Walmart. We need him for everything that we do. But with the idea of walking in the Spirit, we need to realize who can walk in the Spirit, right? Can everybody do it? Or just certain people? Well, the answer, it kind of has, has some prerequisites. You can't walk in the Spirit unless you are saved by the grace of God. Now, a question might be forming in your mind of who then can be saved, who can actually be saved and walk in the Spirit, and that's a great question. Well, the answer to that question is that only those who call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Romans 10.13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, notice what the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say that you have to do good things. It doesn't say that you have to go to church. It doesn't say that you have to be baptized. It doesn't say that you have to think good things about people or hold certain political views. It doesn't say that you have to be conservative or liberal or based or woke. But what it does say is that you need to call upon the name of the Lord to save you. This is the first step of walking in the Spirit. And if you haven't accomplished that first step, most of the sermon is not going to apply to you. So I would encourage you to take that first step. Now, attached to this idea of walking in the Spirit, Paul says that if we do this, if we walk in the Spirit, then we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So what does that mean? The fulfilling of these lusts basically means to complete or to perform them. Now, why is this a negative? It's pretty 
uh, easy to see as we read through scripture, but why is Paul commanding us to do this? Why does it matter? Well, to understand that, we have to realize what this lust is talking about. It's talking about sin. And then further, we need to know what sin is and what it does. Sin is what breaks God's law. So the items found, uh, the, the ideas found in verses 19 through 21 are great examples of sin. Sin is what goes against character and who he is. It is active rebellion against him. And that means that God is not okay with sin. He abhors it. Because he is holy and righteous, he must judge sin. Now you might ask why God has the right to judge sin. Why does God get to determine what you do with your life? And why does God get a say in what you do? Now, that's a big question. He has the right to judge sin because he made each and every one of you. You did not begin to exist on your own. He made us. And not only did he make us, but he made us in his image. And with that, there are certain responsibilities. And one of those responsibilities is that we need to reflect who he is. Way back when, a long time ago, in the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam a command. Not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But Genesis 3.6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise... She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Here we have an account of the fall of man. When this happened, we were all placed under sin in Adam. Now, if you think that's not fair that some guy 6,000 years ago gets to decide that you are under sin, just think back to the last time that you said a little white lie or took a cookie out of the cookie jar. Regardless of whether or not you're under sin because of Adam, you're under sin because of yourself. You've sinned every day for your entire life. These acts, these sins that are committed, goes directly against God's command, specifically in Genesis 3, 6. That sin went directly against God's command, and every other sin has done the exact same. Now, this sin that each of us commits separates us from God, right? Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So sin causes death. That's what it's talking about. For the wages of sin is death. Sin, the reward that you get for sin is death. And in this case, it's talking about spiritual death. Now spiritual death is when we are eternally separated from God's goodness and are eternally condemned to hell. A sin against an infinite God requires an infinite payment, and that is why hell is eternal. This is God's judgment on sin. So back to our, back to our verse, if we walk in the Spirit, and, uh, if walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, so why should believers walk in the Spirit? so that they do not act out the very things that cause the wrath of God to fall upon the children of disobedience. Ephesians 5, 6 says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, 
For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Christians should not live like those who disobey God. So to sum up what Paul is saying, if we walk the Christian life by completely relying on the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us, we will not perform, we will not complete the lusts that the flesh so vehemently desires. So we've got the command, but in verses 17 through 18, we kind of see the reason behind that command. Scripture says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. So here Paul mentions that the flesh and the Spirit are diametrically opposed to each other. Makes sense, right? Basically, the flesh desires everything that the Spirit hates. And the Spirit desires everything that the flesh hates. And he says at the end of the verse, these are contrary the one to the other so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. If you've ever read the book of Romans, if you haven't, I would encourage you to do so. But Romans 7, uh, verses 15 and verse 19 say, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would do, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. For the good that I would do, I do not. But the evil which I would not do that I do. If we were to take an inward look, regardless of whether or not we think we are the number one person on the planet or so amazing or just such a good servant or whatever we are, we must come to the conclusion that our flesh, that what our flesh wants is everything that God hates. The more we walk in the spirit, the less we fulfill the lusts of the flesh, but the less we walk in the spirit, the more we fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Next, let's look at verse 18. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. So here we have a contrast. If ye are led of the Spirit, we are not under the law. So what does that mean? Well, if we are led by the Spirit, the, let, let's break it down a little bit. Before we get to what being led by the Spirit is, let's talk about what it isn't. So being led by the Spirit is not a feeling. Our feelings are not the Holy Spirit. It is not being passive and attempting to let the Spirit control you like a robot. It's not the way it goes. We are active as we live this Christian life. Being led by the Spirit is also not just assuming that because you're saved, you are being led by the Spirit. What being led by the Spirit is is what it means to walk in the Spirit, to have complete dependence on Him. Let's look at the next part of the verse. Ye are not under the law. So we have to keep in mind the context of the whole book as we look at this passage. It's justification by faith. Paul has spent the last few chapters showing that the law cannot save and that it is faith that saves us. So what does the law do? The law condemns. We, in and of ourselves, 
cannot fulfill the law. Whether it be the Old Testament law or just the Ten Commandments. We can't even keep the Ten Commandments. So we cannot fulfill it. And here's the important contrast. Whereas under the law, we are bound, lacking any ability at all to be free from its condemnation, under Christ, the only man to fulfill the law completely, because he was without sin and perfect, and God in the flesh, we can have freedom. Romans 8.1 uh, as Brother John read earlier, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Even as Christians, as we, as we stumble and as we sin and as we deal with temptation, we are not by ourselves who God looks at. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And one of the most important verses when it talks about the substitutionary atonement that Jesus Christ made for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. So being led by the Spirit of God is to live every day under the influence of the Holy Spirit, depending on him and yielding to him. If we are led by the Spirit, we will walk in the complete freedom that comes when we are in Christ. We've looked at the battle plans now we're going to get a look at the enemy that Christians face. Whenever a soldier goes into battle, he needs a clear picture of who the enemy is. He doesn't just go in and fight the first person he sees. He has to know who the enemy is. In verses 19 through 21, Paul expounds on the, the enemy that Christians face and on what the fulfilling of the lust me, uh, uh, the fulfilling of the lust of the flesh means. So we're going to read verses 19 through 21, and then we're just going to zoom in uh, at the beginning. So now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That is a long list. If you sit down and look at it, it's a long list. But uh, Paul says at the end, and such like. He doesn't even list all of them. But the first thing that Paul mentions is that the works of the flesh are manifest. That means that they are clearly seen. They know what, like, people know what they are. Christians know what they are. Now, we might not know what they are by experience, but we do know that what they are and what, that they go against what God says in his word. But Paul doesn't just rely on the assumption that the audience knows what the works of the flesh are. He lists them, not to take up space in the letter, not to just 
you know, say something, but to leave no question whether or not something is a work of the flesh. Just in case his audience thought that hating people, as long as they were bad people, was okay, he puts hatred on the list. Just in case they thought some form of immorality was okay, just as long as it wasn't a big one, he adds three descriptions of immorality on the list. But in order to complete the idea that Paul is displaying here and to really get a good understanding, I want to take a quick look at Matthew 15, 18 through 20. Scripture says, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. The list here and the list that we have in Galatians 5 are fairly similar. They kind of deal with some of the same things. What Paul is saying, Paul does not mean that just the outward action of a sin is wrong. Just the the scene action. He, is, he means that from the moment the temptation takes hold of the heart and directs it towards sin to the completion of the sin is wrong. Now, we aren't going to hit every one of these works of the flesh, but the items uh, are very important to look at because each one of them go against one of the Ten Commandments in one way or another. For instance, the first four listed, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness goes directly against the seventh commandment. Exodus twenty fourteen: thou shalt not commit adultery. The next two, idolatry and witchcraft, go against the first and second commandment. Exodus 20, 3 through 4, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth, the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The next nine, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, and murders are against what Jesus Christ says to be one half of the whole law. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The last two are against the body of the one committing the sin, drunkenness, revelings. These go against the idea that As Christians, we are to take care of our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit. But Paul doesn't just leave these sins and list them and act as if they were not an affront to God and his character. At the end of verse 21, Paul says, Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a pretty sobering thought. But what does it mean? Let's talk about that for a minute, what it means. What does it mean for unbelievers? Well, it's, it's pretty clear what it means for unbelievers. As they are not saved, they are condemned to hell. They are not in a saved state, so they have no inheritance because they are not children of God. They are the children of disobedience. One commentator that I read as I studied this passage said this about this verse. These are sins which will undoubtedly shut men out of heaven. 
The world of spirits can never be comfortable to those who plunge themselves in the filth of the flesh, nor will the righteous and holy God ever admit such into his favor and presence. This is the state that unbelievers are in. This is the state of those who commit these sins, those unbelievers that they are in. From the heart, they are actively opposing God and cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we've talked about what it means for unbelievers, but what does it mean for believers? Because you've got to remember the audience that Paul is talking to. He's talking to the Galatians, the church at Galatia. Surely, we don't fall into this category of people who do not have an inheritance in the kingdom. And you'd be right. Well, to finish the quote, I'm going to read the whole thing again, but I want to finish it. It says, These are the sins which will undoubtedly shut men out of heaven. The world of spirits can never be comfortable to those who plunge themselves in the filth of the flesh, nor will the righteous and holy God ever admit such into his favor in presence, unless they be first washed and sanctified and justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is the very, this is almost the exact same list as what Paul uh, has in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. And it says almost the exact same thing. But verse 11 says, And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, Nate, I just did one of these sins yesterday. What does that mean? Why do I still struggle with sin? You, you might be thinking, I don't want to struggle with this sin anymore. Am I even a Christian? What am I going to do? The answer as wild and as too simple that it sounds complex as it seems, is to walk in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul himself struggled with sin, and we've kind of already talked about that, but Romans 7.15, once again, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. I would encourage you to trust God to talk to him about your sin and ask for help. God cares about you. We, as Christians, can echo the psalmist as he says, he brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. What happens when we do sin, right? We, we sin, we're Christians, we walk through this life and we struggle, we fall, but 1 John 2.1, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our sin is heinous. It's what it is. But it is never so heinous that it can overpower the justification that is found in Christ Jesus. So what does this mean for Christians practically? How, do, how, how are we going to live our lives in light of this truth? Paul says in Ephesians 5, 7, Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Don't partake of the sins that cause unbelievers to have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. We've seen our command and we've seen our enemy, but we're in this battle. 
And do we have any allies in this fight? Yes, yes, we have the Holy Spirit. We've already touched on the fact that the Spirit is there to guide and direct us, verses 16 through 18, as we walk in him. But what is the evidence that he is there? Paul gives us a list of nine items that are the fruit of the Spirit. And now there's a little song that uh, helps us remember them. But we're not going to sing it today um, because I can't sing. So, uh, and if we were to break down every single one of these items, we'd be here all day. And we do have an evening service tonight, so we can't be here all day. But I'm going to read verses 22 through 23 real quick. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. So Paul starts with love. We ought to love God and love one another. 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's a beautiful passage about love, what love is and what love does. Next, Paul talks about joy. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. The only place that we can truly have joy, we might have happiness at some points in our life, but the only place that we can actually have joy is when we are walking in the Spirit. The next item is peace. Isaiah 26.3, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. What a blessing it is that throughout any circumstance in life, throughout any storm in life, when we are God's children, we can have peace. Long-suffering. That means patience with other Christians and patience with other people. Just like how God is long-suffering with us. This goes along with, with love from 1 Corinthians 13. Love suffers long. We ought to strive to be long-suffering with people. We should be patient with people. The next items are gentleness and goodness. Being kind and good to one another is so important. God is good and gentle with us. That's kind of the idea behind, well, it's literally the idea behind gentleness, is that he is gentle with us. We, the least that we can do is to be good and gentle with others. And as we're walking in the Spirit, these are things that will show forth through us. The next is faith. Romans 1.17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now this isn't necessarily like that first time that you get saved. This isn't what that's talking about. But when it says from faith to faith, it's talking about that faith that you had when you first got saved and as you grow to the faith that you have as you grow in Christ. As we grow in our walk with God, we grow in our faith. Meekness, that's power under control. That's being humble where you're at. Jesus Christ is the greatest, greatest example of meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Being meek is to be Christ-like. When you think back to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and that he is the omnipotent God who could call down an army of angels at that very moment to save him from that, he didn't do it. Not, 
He, he, didn't, he didn't ask them to come save him, having full ability to do so. He had the power, but he humbled himself and humbled himself to the death of the cross. Temperance. We should have self-control as Christians. And you can have self-control, but self-control that we have on our own, it might be well and good, but it will never compare to the self-control that we have in Jesus Christ as we walk in the Spirit. At the end of the verse, uh, verse 23, Paul then says, Against such there is no law. This means that those who display these fruits cannot be condemned by the law. The people who have these fruits are the ones that are truly free from the law because there is no condemnation that can be brought against them. Other evidence for the Holy Spirit being in our lives is in verse 24. Scripture says, And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Going back to Romans, Romans is a phenomenal book, and I'm going to put another plug in here for Romans, read Romans. But Romans chapter 6, Paul goes on this entire just discussion of mortifying the deeds of the flesh and being dead with Christ but alive in him, being dead to sin but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We are to die to ourselves daily and kill the deeds of the flesh. Our flesh is crucified with Christ. So those that are Christ's do this. Now, we might not consistently do it. I know none of us consistently do this. I don't, and you don't. But there is repentance where it is needed and the desire to be close to God. Now, Paul doesn't just leave us with verse... 24. He gives some words of encouragement. I'll read verses 25 through 26. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. In verse 25, Paul implores those who, are, who say that they are in the Spirit to actually walk as if they were in the Spirit. That's a mind-boggling concept, right? If you are in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit govern our actions. So basically, if it goes against the Spirit, don't do it. If it is in line with what the Word of God says and what it asks of us, we are to do it. Here we have the inward part, the life, if we live in the Spirit, and the outward part, the walk and the fruit. If we live in the Spirit, we should walk in the Spirit too, right? Now, Paul might be saying this because there are those who would say that they are alive in the Spirit, but don't really portray their lives and their walk very well. They don't portray the idea that they are in the Spirit very well. Let's not be like that. Let's not make anybody or ourselves question whether we are alive in the Spirit or not. We should walk in the Spirit And other people should be able to see that too. Verse 26 gives an interesting encouragement at the end of this passage. Scripture says, Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. These exhortations are as relevant to us today as they were relevant to the Galatians 2,000 years ago. Vain glory, pride, ambition, whatever you want to call it, 
is not to be found in the Christian life. All it does is lead to provoking and irritating other Christians and being envious of them. Whether it is wanting to be recognized for your fruit and how loving you are or how good you are or how self-controlled you are or how, how you want people to see how much you walk in the Spirit, it's wrong. All this does is cause the other Christians to be irritated with you, quite frankly, because they are in the same spot that you are. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and it causes you to envy others. You look at others and see the glory that they have, and it causes you, at no fault of the other person, to be envious of them. This follows the idea of walking in the Spirit. If we are walking in the Spirit, we are not going to be desiring vain glory, because that's what it is, vain. There is only one man who has ever deserved any kind of glory whatsoever, and that is the God-man, Jesus Christ. To seek after glory is to be vain. It means nothing. But to, and to seek after this glory is also to try and place yourself in a spot that only Jesus Christ should have. And that, my friends, is the sin of pride. Let us walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. To walk in the Spirit is to be led by Him. So I ask you, are you being led by the Holy Spirit? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to bring you to where He wants you to be? Not like a robot, but like someone who has submitted their will to the will of someone greater. If you are unsaved, the only parts of this passage that apply to you beside the initial command to walk in the Spirit, are verses 19 through 21. These are the works that you will accomplish because you're not walking in the Spirit. And the consequences of that is that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So I am, I, today I, I beg you to trust Christ and begin your walk in the Spirit, begin living in the Spirit. If you aren't alive in Christ and the Spirit, you cannot walk in the Spirit. And if you're saved, if you're a believer here, I would encourage you to let the Holy Spirit guide and direct you as you walk the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word today, we are encouraged and convicted about our walk in the Spirit.